pointed out to me the other day. She said, you realize that you're probably the only pastor not in one of the Gospels doing the resurrection story. And I said, yes, I am. It's still Resurrection Sunday. We're still going to talk about the resurrection because every passage is rich and is in the context of our risen Savior. And then Gavin pointed out to me, he's like, Dad, are you doing the resurrection story tomorrow? And I was like, well, we're going to continue on through James. And you know, you're probably one of the only pastors in town. I'm like, you've been talking to your mother. Okay, you like, he hears everything, he listens. Uh, I want you to hear my heart in this. We know as believers, right, as the church comes together, we know the resurrection story. We know that he is risen. This is not taking away from that. I look at each opportunity as a, as a moment that God has given me as a, as a leader and a teacher to share at least one more message with the saints. Like to explain one more time and one more passage because the way that life goes, the reality of our existence that James will lay out is that this may be the absolute last sermon that I ever get to preach to the saints. And so I want to be faithful that if Christ were to return or when I finally see him face to face and how wonderful that will be, I will be able to say I was faithful at least in that. So for me, I know the resurrection story. I know you know the resurrection story. We've been singing of the resurrection and it's in the context of what James is telling us right now. If it weren't for the resurrection, Paul says, that if they were to find his body, if the resurrection were proven false, may we be a people to be most pitied. May you and I live a life that if Christ were found, if his body were found, then people would look at you and me and say, they wasted their entire life. How ridiculous was that? And they would pity us. Paul says that if Christ were found and the resurrection were proven false, then how, how pitiful we should be. I don't know if I live my life like that. I live it kind of hedging over here too, right? right? We want to we hold on to both. And it's in that context that if the resurrection were proven false, we would be a people to be most pitied. Therefore, James chapter 3 is absolutely and totally applicable to us right now. Okay, so James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, just continuing through James, that's, that's what God does, that he puts a passage like this on Easter Sunday as many people are gathering into the church. And James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And let me pause right there. I'm in the ESV version. So if you're, if you're reading, you're like, hey, the words are kind of, kind of uh, different right here. I'm in ESV. If you're in NIV, the, the, the truth of the scripture is the same. But I'm in ESV. I'm going to go back to 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, y'all listen to this. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here's what we have in this passage, and 
And if you're, if you're a guest here, it's your first time. Um, and, and some of you, it's not your, your first time. But just a reminder, we take the text, and there, our goal as leaders and pastors is to help you understand the text so that the text can take root in your life. So here's the breakdown of where we're about to go. Three sections, right? Always three. There's a challenge. James is going to challenge us with something. Then he's going to talk about the fruit of human wisdom and the fruit of godly wisdom. James essentially is going to say, I have a challenge for you. You need to consider, do you have human wisdom or godly wisdom? Because there are two types of wisdom, and they are both vying for our lives. So as people who profess who believe in the resurrected Lord, and we want to walk, uh, walk a godly life and live a godly life, then you and I need to determine, have we, or are we exhibiting human wisdom or godly wisdom? They both bear fruit, and they are absolutely different fruit. So let's just, let's just dive into it. The challenge, chapter 3, verse 13. And I will tell you, the challenge is where I'm going to spend the most time because I want us to understand the context of why this is such an important thing for us to consider. So in the challenge verse, verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. All right now, so it's, it's a question that's posed to us. Who's wise and understanding? And James is not asking us to raise our hand because if we do that, can you imagine if we were sitting in a crowded room and the pastor said, Who's wise and understanding? I need somebody to kind of step up real quick. You know what I know. That Ricky's going to be the first one that goes, I, probably, I can probably help you right there, right? Because we are a wise people. We're people who know what we're doing, and we take pride in that. James is not asking for us to raise our hand and say, hey, I have wisdom and understanding. What he's about to do is show us the foolishness that when Ricky raises his hand and says he has wise, that he is wise and understanding, that Ricky should be putting his hand back down. It's a call to humility, and it's a call for us to check our pride. What he really desires is for us to consider, are we living a godly life or not? So, he's presenting a challenge to the Christians who are in the dispersion. So, remember James 1.1, he's writing to Christians who are scattered everywhere. We have been scattered throughout Fort Smith, Van Buren area, uh, probably other places, uh, Harrison, and then in Russellville, we've been all brought together. Right now, we get to hear this unified message. So what is he really saying in this challenge? Okay, this is one of those messages where I'm going to keep saying the original word means, or the original word refers to, because this is one of those passages where understanding that actually adds much richness to the text. Okay, so for example, the Greek word, I'm not going to try to pronounce them. In fact, I left them out of my notes to avoid the temptation I've tried to pronounce those words and make myself sound like a fool, okay? So, but the Greek word for wise referred to speculative knowledge and philosophy, right? So in the original language, um, so I tend to think of wisdom as having knowledge and then applying it to a situation. That's not what it originally meant. In the Greek, it actually referred to the ones who can sit there and, and think hypothetically and, and, and philosophically and think through these scenarios, so he says, who is it that can actually think deeply right here? Understanding is actually what we might be more um, familiar with with wisdom. It says the, the, the Greek word I wrote here, um, it's only used here in the New Testament. So it only shows up in the New Testament in the book of James. And it's actually applied to someone who is a specialist or a professional. They're skilled in what they do. So whenever James says, 
Who is it that is wise and understanding? He says, who is it that can think deeply? And who is it that can actually apply what they've thought to that situation? All right? And so, so here's what he's really asking. It's a rhetorical question. But he's really trying to push us. Who really knows how to live a godly life? Remember the book of James is all about the substance of our faith. Because we all would say we profess faith. But then James presents to us that maybe not all faith is the same because even the demons believe and they tremble and yet their acts are still evil. So there's faith out there that is not godly faith and his book that he penned through the, the, through the Holy Spirit and that we can understand through the Holy Spirit is really challenging us now. We're past the tongue. We're past favoritism and partiality. We're past good works. Now we're to the point where he says, okay, but what's the tenor of your life? When all these things come together, what's it really begin to look like? And at the source of that is wisdom. Who is it that can think deeply and apply that depth to practical situations in life? Who can live a wise God life because that's what we want? And then he's going to start walking us through it. He does tell us so clearly, though, that the attributes of a godly life, he answers it, and it's right here. Look at your text. By his good conduct... Let him show his good work, I'm sorry, show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Do you and I live godly lives? And he says, if so, there's going to be three things. By our good conduct, by our works, and by our humility or our meekness of wisdom. Three attributes that will define the godly life, our conduct, our works, and our humility. How are we lining up so far? And I want you to keep in mind that our hearts are deceitful, right? So because we can sit back and go, well, I mean, compared to Paul, my conduct's pretty good. Compared to Trent, my works are pretty good. And compared to Bo, I've got humility down, right? So we're all comparative. So let me, let me rephrase it this way. By your good conduct, according to whom? According to God. Would God say that your conduct is right? Are you living the life God wants you to live? By your good works, according to whom? According to God. Would he see your works and say that those are right and good? And according to the humility of wisdom, according to whom? According to God. May he always be the standard that we compare ourselves to. Yes, he's holy. And yes, we are not. And there's a great distance that seems to be there, except that he has washed our sins away and has welcomed us into his holiness so that we can stand before him. But we must always honor that holiness by trying to practically work out our holiness. Okay, so, so he has two questions for us to consider. Number one was, do they or do we possess wisdom? And then number two is where I really want us to push in. Is our understanding of wisdom correct? I live in a world of education and academia. It means that there's a lot of people who are, are very knowledgeable about what they know. And whenever you ask them what they know, they're very happy and pleased to tell you what they know and how they know what they know is actually right. And they should because they're skilled in that area. But we live in a world where wisdom is upheld, as it should be, but people also like to proclaim their wisdom. We have books of quotes, of wise sayings that people have passed on. We have, 
uh, speakers that we like to listen to more than others because they seem to purvey some sort of wisdom that nobody else can possess. We listen to people who are wise about business, wise about church, and wise about life, wise about parenting, how to put your kids to bed, how to feed them, how to raise them up, and then we sit back and wonder, what kind of kid did they have? Because that doesn't match up with my life at all. Right? But we're gravitating towards people who profess wisdom. James is writing to them, and he says, do you really understand wisdom in the right way? Okay. Whenever we read the Old Testament, everything that James is about to present to us, when we read the Old Testament, it all matches up. The Old Testament and James say that there are two types of wisdom. There's human wisdom or earthly wisdom, and then there's godly and heavenly wisdom, and the two do not cross. The two are entirely different camps. Human wisdom will bear its own fruit. Godly wisdom will bear its own fruit. Our responsibility when we're confronted with Scripture is not to inspect anybody else's fruit, but to check the fruit of our lives and let God begin to prune and be so thankful that he would be gracious to show us the rotten fruit and the bad fruit of our lives and to keep us planted in the rich soil of who he is. But I do fear, like brothers and sisters, wherever it is that you normally gather in church, I do fear that the wisdom we most often pursue is the wisdom of the world. It's the loudest, it's the most vocal, it's near and it inundates us. But whenever I look at the world and I look at the church, I feel that we most often find ourselves pursuing the wisdom of the world and therefore the fruit of it is born in our churches and in our lives and we find ourselves struggling under the weight of that. We might be perceived as wise and that's the outward perception but then sometimes we know on the inside of of who we truly are that there's a disconnect of our faith and the peace of God that we should possess. So, very clear from the beginning and all throughout James, before we, before we push further and further into this in 1 Corinthians, you and I should be doing good works. It's all throughout Scripture. You and I should be speaking rightly with our tongues and with our lips. It's all throughout Scripture. right? We've been preaching these things. We should be thinking differently than the world, and it's all throughout Scripture, from beginning, from Genesis to end. It's all throughout there. And you and I should be loving deeply and sacrificially. It's all throughout Scripture. What you and I most urgently and deeply need is God's Word to continually realign us so that we can. Because we live in a loud and dirty world, and we walk through, when we walk through it, we just get that pressed upon us. You need this, and we need the washing of the the word. But get this, may we be utter fools, not wise to the world, but may we be utter fools to the world because of the wisdom of Christ that we profess. Right? We all want to be wise, but I think Scripture says, be a fool to the world, because these two things are completely contrary. Turn with me, and, and you can use your phone, um, and cross lifers, I know some of you got your scripture journal, so use your phone, whatever. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, and, and listen to what Paul is saying at this point. First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. I want us to grapple and wrestle with wisdom in and of itself. Because wisdom is an existential reality. It exists. Like, it's something 
that we can aspire for. It's something that we can think of. It's not some vague notion. It's something that we can possess. There is wisdom. And you read Proverbs, and Proverbs, there's Lady Wisdom who cries aloud in the streets and will lead you to a godly, righteous life. And then Lady Folly is in the streets who will lead you to a foolish life. Both are just as loud. Both are on the, at the city gates. Both are in the streets. Both are totally, absolutely accessible whenever you read Proverbs. It's a really neat study to put Lady Wisdom next to Lady Folly. And at one point, Lady Wisdom says that God possessed me at the beginning of all of his works. All right, so wisdom is an ancient, eternal reality of God. It's something that is hard to think about, but we're going to have a way to get there. Don't worry. So with wisdom so near us, here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14 says for us, O Christians who want to be wise, Ricky being first. And I say that to, to my, my sin of pride. Paul says, and this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught to us by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Listen to this. The natural man, which would be the unchristian or the one who does not believe in God, the natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, just lays out that the natural man, the one who does not profess Christ, is not going to understand the things of Christ or love the things of Christ, church. They're not going to act like Christians and believe Christian things and aspire for Christian attributes because they're not Christians. They will open the same passage of Scripture that you and I will. They won't see the wisdom of God because they are not spiritually discerning it. Therefore, we pray for their salvation that God will open their eyes so they can see the richness that you and I glory in. We're going to go a little bit further. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I'm sorry, so, so flip back. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 28. I know that this is a long one. But look at how God uses His wisdom to highlight His own glory. And just to understand, we're, we're still separating that there are two types of wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 28. Listen to this. For the word of the cross, right, that's what drew us in. Right, let me stop right there. The word of the cross, when we heard it, it drew us in and we responded in repentance and we gave our life to Christ and we said, you're right, you, God, are the king. You have absolute reign and authority over who I am. So, for the word of the cross, though, that first attracted us, it is folly, so it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy, God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since Look at this. In the wisdom of the world, God, I'm sorry, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you understand, like, do you hear that? That there is a wisdom of the world, and there is a wisdom of God, and for those of us who want to be wise in God, we will be fools in the world. To be wise in the world is to be a fool to God. He does not honor worldly wisdom, but the world cannot receive godly wisdom either. We are to live godly lives that really begin to make true what we hear in 1 Peter, that we who were not a people... He has redeemed us and made us a holy nation unto himself, that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. We are different, and we are meant to be different. We are different people. We are sojourners in this world. We are aliens who are moving through. This is not our home, and we say that, but then we find ourselves living in this world Y'all, we are destined for a world way beyond this that has been purchased by his death and resurrection, and that's the home that I want to be comfortable in. I do not ever want to find myself comfortable or welcomed in this world. And to do that, we need the wisdom of God. And all of Corinthians was saying that, that God and his wisdom will be foolishness to the world, and it's going to be foolishness because they're not spiritual. They're not going to understand it. So my point in all that, and James's point, you can go ahead and flip back to James momentarily. Actually, you know what? Don't do it, because I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians one more time. Um, the, the point is that the fruit of worldly wisdom and the fruit of godly wisdom are just two totally different fruit. You can't pick an apple from an orange tree or an orange from an apple tree. I think those both have trees that bear fruit. Okay, good. If not, fix that later. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go to verse 30. This is that I told you there's this existential like wisdom that's out there. There's lady wisdom. And, and how do we really try and understand all this? We understand it best through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And it says this. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, for, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Y'all, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. If you want to know God, know Christ. If you want to grow wise, know Christ. If you press into Christ more and more and you make studying Christ and being like Christ more and more the tenor of your life, then you will attain the wisdom of God. But if you want to be a Christian and not look like Christ, have anything to do with Christ, study Christ, or grow old to Christ so that nothing about Christ moves you anymore, then you will not have the wisdom of God. If you would be wise and live the godly life, you must possess Christ and follow Christ. Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. That's pretty cool to me because I can possess that. I one day will see Jesus face to face, either because I've been called up to the sky or he is returning or I've passed from here and I stand in his presence one day face to face with the eternal wisdom of the ancient one from end to end, all of his wisdom I will be able to stare into it because I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ who shed his blood on Good Friday and who has risen on Easter Sunday. In Christ is not only all the righteousness of God, 
all the goodness, all the covenant keeping to love God and man supremely, uh, all the redemption and all the glory, but all the wisdom of God is bound up in Christ. All the fullness of God's redemptive plan from beginning to end. I had one of my kids, I can't remember which one, asked me one night. Basically, it was, what if an Adam and Eve had not sinned, then what would have happened? What are the depths and the riches of God's wisdom? We cannot search it. We don't know. But what we do know is that he will bring all things to goodness again. But there was a depth in his wisdom that he found fit that at the right time there would be brokenness and that at the right time other redeemers would come along and you can see this all throughout the Old Testament who are pointing to the great redeemer who would come and at the right time, at the fullness of time, Scripture says, and while we were yet ungodly and enemies and evil and wicked, Christ died for the ungodly. Such is the wisdom of God. Who can understand that? So, all that say, do you desire godly wisdom? Do you desire a godly life? Then it's simple. Look to Christ. He is the wisdom and the radiance of the fullness of the glory of God, and he has the eternal depth that we are hungering for. Ecclesiastes says that, that eternity has been planted in our hearts, and that's what we hunger for. Go to Job chapter 28. I promise, point one. Oh, we're still in point one. But point one's a long one. Point two and three echo out of this. You're going to be in Job chapter 28. I want you to, to see in Job 28 the richness of wisdom. Having taught for so many years, I would see students who would come in and I would say, how do you feel about English? Horrible at English. I hate English. I'm not good at English. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, well, you never had me as a teacher, right? I can teach you, I promise. And so they, I would, and my thing to them would be, just trust me. Trust me and walk with me and you, and you can learn this. And they would. They would make that progress. Not because I was a great teacher, but watch this. I pray two things whenever I'm driving into work, even today, and it is the source of any success I've had in my career. Lord, give me the wisdom to do the job that you gave me to do and give me favor with people. That's the secret of my success. Other than that, I'm an utter fool. I always tell people, God's just been really gracious to a fool, but I trust him for my wisdom and I trust him for the favor that I have with people. If he removes either one of those, I lose everything. And that's exactly where I want to be. I want it to be that if he doesn't show up, my life makes absolutely no sense. And praise God, he has been gracious to a fool. But that's a simple prayer that everybody can echo. When you wake up, whenever you're going to work, Lord, give me the wisdom to do the work you would have me to do and give me the favor to do the work, the favor with people to do the work and to be able to show your glory to others. There's a search for wisdom, right? So look at Job 28. Job is really going to articulate wisdom. Let's try to make sure that we all, all landed there. Listen to wisdom. Job 28, verses 12 through, through 28, Job says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. Right? And so the reason I talked about those students real quick was simply to say that they would come in with kind of this defeated feeling, and they would even say, I'm just not a smart student. I just can't get it. And they'd kind of disconnected from the reality that they actually could. They didn't see the value of pressing on towards it. Job says that that's kind of how we all are whenever it comes to wisdom. People don't really understand how valuable wisdom is and how attainable it really can be. 
Man does not know the worth of wisdom. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep say, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not in me. It can't, wisdom cannot be, fought, cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal wisdom, nor can it be exchanged for jewels or fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal, nor can it be valued in pure gold. For where then does wisdom come? Church, listen. And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard rumor of it with our ears. But then watch this. God understands the way to wisdom and he knows its place. He looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. And when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when God made a decree for the rain and the way of the lightning and of the thunder, then he saw it and he declared it. He established wisdom and searched it out. And God said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Would you know wisdom? Fear the Lord. That's where we miss it. Wisdom is a reality that's out there, but it's actually so near because all we must do is fear the Lord. And in fearing the Lord, we will see Christ glorified and Christ is the wisdom. How can you and I understand or kind of how can we get this wisdom that God seems to possess? It's really, really simple. James 1, 5, bringing us all the way back to James. So now you can flip back to James. We're there again, okay? That wisdom which God possessed at the beginning of all creation and that only He knows the way to through the fear of the Lord and that we understand is now through Jesus Christ. How can we attain that wisdom? James 1.5 says it so simply. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. I think the reason we don't ask for wisdom is that we didn't understand that it was really that big of a deal. We thought we had wisdom because we're living a pretty good life now, right? Things are moving forward. Life seems pretty solid right now, this morning, because the kids are gone. But life seems good. There's peace. We have wisdom, don't we? Life's good. What We don't ask because we don't see the value of it, and that's what Job was saying. People don't seek wisdom because they don't understand how beautiful it actually is. Church, if you want wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, which we all do, come on, let him ask God who gives it generously and it will be given. Okay. So he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who lives the godly life by his good conduct, by his good works, and in humility of wisdom, let it be true. All right, so, so then what is... What does this wisdom begin to look like? Remember, there's two camps. There's human wisdom and godly wisdom, and these go quite a bit quicker. But I think we have to understand the weight of wisdom so we understand the two camps of it. You and I may be living with the fruit of human wisdom. Look at verses 14 through 16. But if you have, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So all of this clarifies the, the fruit of 
human or earthly wisdom. As you check yourself here, be careful when you listen to your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says something that should unnerve us, and we won't like it, but we're going to put this on a coffee mug someday. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's probably what we need in the morning while we're drinking our coffee, thinking all of our morning thoughts, right? That one's never put on a shirt. It's a great verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So trust God's assessment in your life. Trust that conviction that he's given you and not your own heart. Your fruit, my fruit will show us. There seems to be two chief fruits if you have human wisdom, and they're these. You will have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I'm not asking what mask you put on and what you present. I'm asking what's in your heart. Don't answer out loud, okay? Spouses, no nudging either. There are two chief fruits, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Okay, so breaking them down, here we get to the Greek terms that I will not pronounce. The Greek term for bitter refer to undrinkable water. Okay, I think, we, I think we get that one. And the Greek term for envy or jealousy refer to a harsh, resentful attitude towards others. So to have bitter jealousy was like a negative upon negative, that, that you would have such a bitterness towards other people. It would be an outward aggression against others, even if it's passive aggressive, by the way. But there's this outward aggression that does not delight in the joy of others or for them either, but rather it turns a heart's attention back to itself and what we deserve. So he's saying, do you have bitter envy or bitter jealousy within you? And that's coupled with selfish ambition. Listen to what the original word meant. It's not used uh, much in the New Testament, but it's usually translated strife or self-seeking. And it, it referred to this. In the original Greek, it described anyone who was interested in politics or public office, to the de- and they were willing to do anything to the degree that for any selfish reason, anything it took to get the position that they wanted. That was the deep-seatedness of the selfishness. Whatever it takes to get what I want, that's what that Greek term originally referred to. So James says, if you have bitterness and envy and selfish ambition, you're really concerned with living your own life with your own agenda to your own ends. That's the tenor of your life. I have my goals. I will attain them, and this is how I will do it at all costs. Now, I have to tell you, the world will tell you that this is absolutely the way to live, by the way. The world's going to tell us that we must assert ourselves and stake our claim, that if we don't boast of ourselves, if we don't tell others how good we are, then who will? That we need to do us, and then they will do them, and so we, in other words, stake our claim, and we make sure that when the dust settles, we are still standing strong, that we assert who we are, we're confident in who we are, we boast in who we are because no one else will. The world sees that wisdom, proclaims that wisdom, and as we are growing up, young men and women, teenagers in this room, there's something that sounds right, and we say, that seems absolutely right, that's what I'll do. If I don't tell people how good and what I can do, then who in the world will? The world's wisdom is full of bitter envy and selfish ambition. And I fear that that wisdom makes a lot of sense in our churches and to Christians as well. Because we live in a world and we begin to listen to the world that we live in. It's because of this, I think, that we see discord and divisions in churches. Because everybody's looking out for their claim. Everybody thinks that this is right. The book of Judges says something very chilling that haunts me. 
Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it repeats that refrain all throughout. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Proverbs 14 reminds us, 14.12, and then it's actually repeated word for word in Proverbs 16.25. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. We must be careful whenever we say, oh, that seems right, seems good, because our hearts are deceptive. He does say, he goes on, verse 15, uh, he says, don't boast if you have those attributes. Like, if you know that's in you, then don't boast because you will prove that you do not possess the truth. He says that this kind of wisdom that we listen to does not come from God, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It is earthly and not heavenly. It is unspiritual or sensual, and it is not spiritual. And then get this one, it is demonic. The fruit of worldly wisdom is demonic. I'm glad I don't have to say that. The Scripture says it. I just have to read what Scripture says. But that should make us that uncomfortable by this point. If we're looking and checking our hearts and we're saying, I'm aspiring to live a godly life, but these attributes are in me, we need to understand that they've been set on fire and they have been spawned in hell. It is a demonic wisdom that we are following because it leads us away from godly wisdom. 2 Corinthians says this, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. We must be careful how we listen. We must be careful to inspect the fruit. May God always be the standard by which we judge. But anything within us, any wisdom that causes us to, to look out for ourselves and aspire for selfish ambition, or we find that there's jealousy and bitter envy within us, so that our lives are more about preserving and protecting ourselves than sacrificially serving others and giving ourselves even to the point of death, as Christ did on the cross. Any wisdom that pulls us into ourselves is not godly. So then what is the fruit of godly wisdom? That's what we want, right? We don't want the wisdom that puts us at the center of our operations, but puts God at the center, and it's very clear. So, verses 17 through 18, <clears throat> excuse me. But the wisdom from above, this is what we want, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what I want to be said of me. I want to have that kind of wisdom. So what does this look like? What do those words actually mean? Let's break it down and then we'll pull it all to a head. So then godly wisdom, y'all, looks like this. It's pure which means that there is a moral purity and a holiness about it. There's a verse that scares me in Hebrews, one of my favorite books. In Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone, and look at this one, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the peace with everyone, I strive for that one, and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we need the godly wisdom that is pure. In other words, we're going to be living pure and we're going to strive for holiness and we will fail. But when I fail, then I know that Brian's right alongside me saying, get back up, repent, let's keep going and do this together. We need holiness because without holiness, we will not see the Lord. 
How does that line up with the world's wisdom right now? You live now, YOLO, live your best life now, experience everything you can right now, and that's usually very indulgent and self-satisfying and self-seeking, and it's worldly wisdom. We were not meant to enjoy all the pleasures here. All of these pleasures are to give us a foretaste of what there is to come. C.S. Lewis says we are far too easily satisfied. We keep gravitating towards something here whenever we forget that there's a feast there. We need holiness, Hebrews 12, 14. But listen to Matthew 5, 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. And I'm going to keep going back to that Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to have Matthew 5 kind of open as a parallel. So it is first pure. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. It is peaceable. This means that the wisdom that comes from God is twofold. It's peace-loving and it's peace-promoting. So any wisdom that we, that we possess, if it does not promote peace with others, and if it does not love peace, right? I was talking to Chess one time, and I said, man, I really hate arguments and fights. Like I'm thinking just the roles, different roles of my, my, my job. I sometimes have to have hard conversations. She's like, well, who really likes to have those kind of meetings? And I said, well, there are plenty. There are people they love to fight. They love aggression. They love arguments. Like they thrive on it. We love peace. And we love promoting peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Would we be sons of God? Blessed are the peacemakers. We love peace. We promote peace. Where worldly wisdom brings division, godly wisdom brings peace. It is gentle. Okay? This is not a word that we're probably very familiar with in the context. If, if, we, if I were to tell Jared... You know, and talking, I want to be, I want, as I approach that, I want to be gentle. It doesn't very, you know, it doesn't sound masculine. It doesn't sound strong. A better understanding might be it's, it's considerate, it's kind, it's submissive. The idea is that, that it is willing to endure all things and submit to all things and sacrifice for the sake of others, for the sake of God. It's that, it is that willing to yield mentality that I will be kind and gracious in all of my speech and I will endure so many things including persecution because the God that I serve is worthy of that sort of tenor of life in me that there's a gentleness and it's a gentleness that the martyrs before us have possessed that they will serve for the sake of Christ that there's a character of meekness and humility and gentleness that's the idea of that one Matthew 5 5 says Jesus says, blessed are the meek, or the humble, the gentle. Blessed are they, for they will inherit the earth. goes on. Godly wisdom, moving through James, is open to reason. This, the, the original term was meant to describe someone who's teachable. In other words, they're willing to listen. All right? They're willing to listen to others and see wisdom in what others are bringing to them. It's not always... I am the wisest and it's my way or the highway. It's that they possess such wisdom that they realize that what they don't know is recognized in the other person and they can recognize that wisdom and be taught by that wisdom as well. Does that make sense? Like there's a willingness to be teachable. And there's, you'll find that all these kind of compound, that they all kind of start to mold out a person in a different way of life. I wrote, there can be a wise, godly deference when other wisdom is shared. The one open to reason is not concerned with his or, his or her own way, but simply God's righteousness. That's what it means to be open to reason. 
Matthew 5, 6. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What Jesus was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, James is paralleling and saying, this is godly wisdom. In case you missed the wisdom that he was delivering to you in the character of a Christian, I'm telling you, this is godly wisdom. This is the tenor of our lives. He says it will be full of mercy and good fruits. Y'all, genuine mercy, and we've been talking about this throughout James, genuine mercy will result in doing good works for others and for God. If we have mercy, like true genuine mercy, then it's not a feeling or an emotion that we experience where we're kind of heartbroken over it, but it's something that actually motivates us to do something. We preach that in James, uh, well, throughout James, but especially um, about two weeks ago with faith without works is dead. You and I must possess mercy because listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And all of those things, when fully realized, will make our wisdom impartial and sincere. And you can look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 on that. That's where we, we talked about uh, the poor and the rich and no partiality being shown between them. Whenever we fully realize godly wisdom, we will, this will be exemplified to everyone. There will be no favoritism, no partiality. Everything we, we do will be sincere. So cross life, here we go. Here's our litmus test. The wisdom that comes from God looks like this in our lives. And what I mean by wisdom of God, the way our lives should look, the tenor that people should see in our lives should be this. It should be pure and peaceable, gentle, and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And when we live lives like that, then look at the, net, the very last verse. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're all sowing something. Right? We're all planting something. We're all going to leave a legacy. People are already talking about you, whether good or bad. Everybody's already assessing who we are. James reorients us and he says, who really has wise and understanding among you? Show it by your life. There's a life that looks wise to the world and it doesn't honor God. And there's a life that is honoring and godly, and it's full of that wisdom of God. And according to Corinthians, it will look like foolishness to this world. I also live in a world that says, Ricky, you need to boast about who you are. You need to tell people who you are, because if you don't, then who will? I found that whenever I just humbly rest in the Lord, there's never been a lack of somebody else speaking well for me. Whenever I speak well for myself and boast of myself, I find a disconnect within me because there's selfish ambition within. But we are, according to Scripture, also to live quiet, humble lives, knowing that God will pay recompense and will, will fight and provide for us. We keep wanting to be the shepherd of our life instead of the sheep. So who is wise and understanding? Y'all, according to God. According to God, what would he say about the tenor of our lives? And then listen to this. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our lives have been completely transformed and changed by Christ. And if his resurrection were not true, then may the lives that you and I strive for be most pitied. 
because everything that we built our life upon was proven to be false. That's a radically different kind of wisdom than this world wants to accept, and it is the absolute wisdom that God expects of his people, that we would be different. If y'all will endure, endure me for one more second, here's just what I wrote. All the wisdom of God, all the fruit of godly wisdom, inevitably points us back to Jesus Christ, who though he had every right to declare his own worthiness and declare that all would serve him, the one who could, who could have destroyed those who persecuted and who could have voluntarily stopped his journey to the cross, that Jesus condescended to us washed the feet of his disciples, pursued the lepers, the blind, the broken, forgave his persecutors, and was faithful to the end. And when he said, it is finished, said, oh, what depth of wisdom and great depravity were realized. He did not die on the cross because of how valuable we are, but because of the depths of our sin. And God in his infinite wisdom determined that the only way a truly sinful creation could be rightfully redeemed is through the pure, peaceful, gentle, submissive, merciful, impartial, and sincere sacrifice of his only son, and all of that so that you and I could be forgiven as sons and daughters of the high king. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper because of all that Christ did and brought us to the table. We're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to have a song of reflection, and Andy will lead us in the Lord's Supper. That's our highest act of worship today. Yo, he has brought us to his table. And this is just a foretaste of being able to feast with him in eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, absolutely inadequate words to try to convey the eternal wisdom that you possess. But I also know this, that I have no words that I could give that have any abiding worth that would keep Christians for the next 50, 60, 90, 120 years but your word does. And that's why that's all I know to preach. So that at the end, all that I've been able to give to others and all that we have been able to give to others is a reliance on your word, which washes us. Jesus prayed, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Lord, help us to be able to, to hear the words and to understand the words, but Lord, thank you that you sanctify us, you grow us in holiness, through the simple and plain preaching of your word. God, thank you for Easter and that you were resurrected and that we are not a people to be most pitied. Lord, may we be fools for you because of your glory. Lord, help us to walk according to your wisdom and not our own. Convict us and lead us to repentance so that we can be a people wholly yours. Amen.